This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Suzanne Wainwright Evans, and she's been with us before, and she knows more about beneficial insects probably than any five other people that I know. She's just amazing. And Suzanne, you mostly work with the greenhouse industry, don't you? Well, I work with greenhouse, nursery. Um, I've also been doing over the last few years quite a bit in hydroponic production, too, with things like um, lettuce and tomato production. But then I also work with uh, some of the botanical gardens. Um, I've been doing a lot of work the last few years, like with the Biltmore Estate, where we've been working on using beneficial insects in the rose gardens to help manage uh, their insect problems so they don't have to use as many insecticides. So I, I kind of reach all over uh, different aspects of the industry. So you're familiar with um, you're familiar probably with the Atlanta Botanical Garden, aren't you? Uh, yes, they actually. I worked with them on the mosaic sculpture product, uh, not product, but project where they put in those large sculptures um, because they were very concerned about having any insects on them. And since they're open to the public, they did not want to use insecticides on them. So I worked with them putting together a biocontrol program uh, for them, a preventative program, so that we were releasing beneficials onto the sculptures uh, to prevent any problems from happening. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I know that they had been very active early on, maybe even back in the 90s, using alternative pest controls instead of, you know, spraying malathion all through their greenhouse and stuff. And I was pretty impressed by that. Yes, a lot of the botanical gardens um, and places that are open to the public pretty much 365 days a year have to be very concerned about um, pesticide use in the public uh, because they don't want to spray a chemical and then have uh, the aroma of it be an issue. Um, Also, the other, to be honest, the big driving factor behind a lot of people using more of the biocontrols today is because many of the insecticides are not working uh, that well because the insects have built resistance to the chemicals just as we are having a problem in humans with antibiotics not working to control uh, illnesses with us. Uh, the, the pest insects have developed a resistance to many of the chemistries. And, you know, I always say you can't build resistance to being eaten. And so (laughs) these beneficial insects that can walk up and eat you, you know, it's going to be hard to develop resistance to that where chemical insecticides, it's actually pretty easy today to develop resistance. Um, In fact, Florida is starting to have a pretty bad issue down in South Florida now with a particular whitefly, um, a Bemisia, which is called the Q-biotype whitefly. 
And before, it had been pretty much on vegetable farms and greenhouses. Now this particular white fly is established in the landscape, and there are very few chemicals that will actually work to control it. Um, it's resistant to most insecticides on the market. There's still a few that work, but the concern is they will develop resistance to those last few insecticides. And so many growers are looking to using more biocontrol options, things like little parasitic wasps that control them, um, but we're also using a lot of fungus these days. Um, they, it, it's, they're fungal diseases that only feed on insects that are um, completely safe for humans, um, and so they're, they're, they're safe to be using. Um, but they're sprayed out. They spray the spores out, and the spores then actually grow on the insects and kill them. Oh, cool. That's interesting. So it's a, that is a, a slower knockdown, though, isn't it? Um, I don't want to say it's slower. It actually works pretty fast. Um, you know, there have been some questions on humidity because if you think of being a fungus, you do need humidity for fungus. But there's one particular uh, uh, species out there, Bavaria bassiana, and you can actually kill insects at 40% uh, humidity. So it actually works at a pretty low humidity. The trick is to get spray coverage. Um, and you know, you have to spray the spore out, but you've got to spray the spore and get it actually on the insect, in this particular case, white flies. And white flies are typically on the undersides of the leaves, and that's why they have to be very, very good sprayers to be able to spray up under the plants and get the, get the, uh, the fungus on the underside of the leaves. This is why, uh, for things like white flies and aphids in the past, the systemic insecticides, the neonics, have been so popular with people because those particular insecticides, you just water in and it goes up through the plant and kills them. Um, and so it's much more labor-intensive to use these, these uh, fungal products from a, a spray standpoint, but we don't have the concerns with them with pollinators or having an insecticide inside of the plant left behind. That's a good thing because I know that there is a, there's been a real push in recent years to tell people about the neonics that have been used in production, say, of um, butterfly wheat, the Asclepius. And it's, it's really hard sometimes to find plants that have not been sprayed or that we know um, that the garden center owners know haven't been sprayed. Right. And, and I actually work with, with some milkweed growers, and um, it is very tricky because people want a perfect plant um, to, to, to have their monarchs on, but they don't want to see any aphids. They don't want to see any thrips. They don't want to see any spider mites. So how are these growers supposed to manage these pests but at the same time not use insecticides, which, you know, it, the, the kind of interesting thing about this is the, the, uh, the neonic insecticides, and people talk a lot about like a metacloprid and kind of tefran, which are kinds of neonics because neonics is a whole group. Some of the, the neonics, actually, they're not very good for caterpillar management when, when Somebody goes out and sprays for caterpillars, nobody uses neonic insecticides because they're not that good at controlling caterpillars. 
the ironic thing is, is I recently had uh, somebody that grows caterpillars call me because they had bought plants that were supposed to be insecticide-free. They put their cats on there, and all the caterpillars died, and it turned out the plants had been recently sprayed with neem. And so in this particular situation, neem turned out to be more of a problem for them, which I know a lot of organic gardeners like neem, um, but understand, you know, just because it's a, a product from a plant doesn't mean it's not going to be toxic to, you know, certain insects in, that, in this situation. Um, but I, I will say that the commercial growers I do work with that are growing the Asclepias for butterfly gardening are very aware of the issue, and they are trying everything not to use insecticides on them. Um, and it's difficult, too, for the garden centers to know what had been used on them because, you know, sometimes they're buying through a broker um, and they might not know directly who the plants are coming from. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing. But I will tell you, um, places like um, North Creek Nurseries um, in Pennsylvania, but they're wholesale only. Um, and they do many species of milkweed. Um, they have been doing a very intensive biocontrol program using things like predatory mites, beneficial nematodes um, on the plants to, uh, so they don't have to use insecticides on them. Well, and beneficial nematodes is a whole other point to, to ponder because I think, especially in the south here, people think nematode... <coughs> You know, they think of the root knot nematode or right. something like that. And, but yet there are beneficial nematodes, which have saved my butt on a few time, few occasions. Yeah, and, and most commercial growing operations, not all, but most greenhouses today are using beneficial nematodes. They're probably, when you look at, you know, who, the number of people using biocontrol agents, that's probably the one thing that's probably being used the most. Not everybody's using predatory mites. Not everybody's using parasitic wasps. But, again, most growers are using beneficial nematodes for multiple reasons. One, um, the battle against western flower thrips, which is traditionally not a homeowner problem and not a landscape problem, but in commercial growing operations, it's one of the biggest challenges growers face. Um, and the thrips can be very tough to manage. And what the challenge has been in the past is this particular uh, uh, species, um, it, it pupates in the soil. So the young thrips live on the plants. They drop to the soil to pupate, and we've never had a chemical to control. You put these beneficial nematodes in the soil, and they will after and kill the pupa in the soil, um, where we've never been able to control it before, so we can actually break the life cycle. And um, an added benefit, too, is they will feed on other insects, too. The, the particular species we use for western flowers also controls fungus gnats, which fungus gnats are often a problem when people bring their houseplants in for the winter. Um, they get the little buzzing gnats around the soil. Um, the beneficial nematodes will control them perfectly and beautifully. It, it's pretty much a standardly used in our industry these days to control the, those gnats and greenhouse operations over chemicals. That is a great thing for people to know. Um, I know that there are products, for homeowner products available for fungus gnats and have been for a while that have, have a few nematodes in them and, and you put them on there and in a couple of weeks you don't have a problem. 
um, even when the when the consumer keeps overwatering their plant. That was always yes. when I worked for Extension. That was one of the big things. Just don't water your plant so often, you know, um, and that will help a lot. You have mentioned a couple of the biggest pests that. <clears throat> And that I've seen over the last 20 years, pardon me, everybody, it is not pollen season right now, but we have mold spores kicking up, and we've been under bad air qualities. But the, the white flies, the newer white flies, well, white flies have always been a pain in the patoot to try to control. But then when you add to that um, some of the other problems that we're seeing, like the thrips, thrips can just go crazy. And then they bite people. I didn't know that. I don't know whether all species do, but um, I remember going in every every afternoon. I would go in my front door when I'd get home from work, and I would be getting bitten by something that was practically invisible. And actually, I was told it was a scrape, not a bite. But um, I took a piece of scotch tape, and I sent some off to the our entomologist up at UGA and, and that's what she said they were. So and and they're carrying we you know, we have to, tomato spotted wilt virus here and thrips carry that. We are gonna have to take a little break right now. But when we come back I'd like to talk a little bit more about this and nematodes and what nematodes are for those people that aren't familiar with them. We'll be right back after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Suzanne Wainwright Evans, and we are talking about beneficial insects, and in specifically right now, we're talking about nematodes. Tell people what nematodes are and what you, what you use them for. Okay, nematodes are actually, um, they're worms. But they're considered non-segmented worms. Like when you look at an earthworm, you can see all those little rings, and they kind of inch their way along. Nematodes move more like a snake because they don't have those rings around them, and they're and they're and they're smoother. Now there are good nematodes, 
and there are bad nematodes. And often gardeners, when you talk about nematodes, they think about the bad nematodes, which are the plant parasitic ones. Those are ones that live in the soil and can actually damage the roots of plants and are next to impossible to manage. Now, what we started talking about before are beneficial nematodes. Now, these particular nematodes um, specifically feed on insects. So they're completely safe for humans, your pets, wildlife, birds, all that. But they will kill insects. And the way they do this is by you do apply these nematodes to the soil, and when the insects are in the soil, and a lot of insects do have part of their life cycle down in the soil, these nematodes will then actually get inside of the insect, and then they actually release a bacteria, and then this bacteria will kill the insect. And then the nematodes reproduce inside of its host, and then the nematodes will leave and then go out in the soil and look for a new host. Um, and today, these nematodes are uh, commercially available, not only for commercial growers, but also for homeowners to use in their uh, yard. And there are multiple species available. So when you do want to look at using nematodes in your yard, the beneficial ones, you need to look at is there a nematode that control it and is the nematode available uh, to me as a homeowner. And so when people get their nematodes, where, where should they get their nematodes from? Um, I, I found the company Biologic. Um, it's located up in Pennsylvania. Um, it's a family-run business. They've been very, very good about providing good, solid information to homeowners um, about how to use nematodes. And they also have a really good hose and sprayer, so you can actually um, buy the nematodes from them and the sprayer. You put the nematodes in the sprayer, you hook it up to your garden hose, and you can spray it out. Um, ideally, it's best to spray them out on a cloudy day or in the evening or first thing in the morning or even when it's lightly raining because you really want to get these nematodes washed down into the soil. But um, a good thing, another good thing, too, about Biologic is they sell in packaging sizes for homeowners that's appropriate. A lot of the commercial products are just the volume is way too large for most homeowners to use, but Biologic does have a homeowner size. That's a good thing to know because they, the beneficial nematodes don't keep forever, do they? No, they don't. They definitely have a shelf life, and it depends on how they're packaged and how long the uh, suppliers had them. And this is something you can run into sometimes with distributors because distributors will buy the product in and they'll hold it and hold it until somebody orders it. And then by the time you get nematodes, then they could be, you know, a few days away from expiration where if you buy them from the actual producer of nematodes, like Biologic, again, it's just one, um, then it's, it's coming direct from the actual producer, and so you'll have um, a longer shelf life for it. But you will need to store them refrigerated, um, and ideally around 40 degrees is uh, the temperature you do want to store them at. How long would they last if they come fresh from Biologic? How long would they last in your refrigerator if all of a sudden, say, you got a uh, string of really hot, dry days? Um, 
Well, it's, they offer different kinds of packaging, but worst case scenario, if you get, they have a packaging that's like in an envelope, you probably want to use it in just a couple of weeks, where they do have another product that comes in vermiculite that can be stored uh, for probably a couple months. Now, I wouldn't suggest that, but let's say you do or you're in a den and you have several hot, dry days and you can't apply till a week later, if they're in your fridge at 40 degrees, you'll be fine. How long, um, what, what kind of things can homeowners use the beneficial nematodes for? Probably the one that I get asked about the most is for flea management. Um, and there is a species uh, of nematode that you can use to control fleas in your yard. They go after the flea larva, not the adults, but um, that's something I get asked about a lot. That's used uh, cutworm is another one uh, that vegetable gardeners will often use it for. Um, iris borer is another real big one. Speaking as I actually have iris borers in my irises right now, but I'm letting them, them grow so I can photograph them. Um, <laughs> but what's nice about the nematodes with the iris borer is, is the nematodes will actually, they, they can sense the carbon dioxide emissions from the insects, and they will actually try to go find them. Unlike we talked about the fungal spore before, where you actually have to spray and get contact with the insects, the nematodes, mm -hmm. I call them little heat-sinking missiles, but they're going to go after those insects and find them to infect them. So the applications are, are pretty easy in something like a garden um, for iris borer, where you can just mix them in a watering can and pour them right over top of the, of the plants and let them go down to the soil. Um, so those, you know, people... And, and fung Go ahead. I was going to say fungus, fungus gnats are the other big one, um, and I often recommend to people if you have your foliage plants outside in the summer and you're going to bring them in, just get a package of nematodes and the species um, that works best for fungus gnats. Um, it's called Steinonema feltii, or it's often sold under the initials S as in Sam, F as in Frank, and you can just mix them up in a watering can, line up your plants, water all your plants, and then that way that will protect um, your house plants from having fungus net issues over the winter. I know quite a few people now are starting to overwinter things like their pepper plants because peppers can manage if you've got a brightly lit room with a big window or if you do them under lights and you can hold them over. And, the you know, of course, if, they, if it's been wet before you bring it in, like when it gets to be autumn and you know, things are, are and it's raining more often, um, people have been having problems with that, I know. Well, yeah. it's interesting you mentioned pepper plants because what I see happening when people overwinter their pepper plants, especially like their ornamental pepper plants or, you know, that special pepper plant that has that pepper they really like, is it's not – fungus gnats are probably not going to really kill the plant. They're going to be annoying. But when they come in, it's usually things like aphids that take the plants over because when they were outside in the yard, you had things like parasitic wasps, lacewings, and ladybugs feeding on the aphids, once you bring them in, you kind of cut them off from those biocontrol agents outside, and the aphid populations tend to explode once they come in. Yeah, and aphids can do a lot of damage. And white flies. I made the mistake one year of bringing in, I didn't even notice, I had a tomato plant that had white fly. It just you know, when I looked later, I realized where, it had, where the problem had started. And those white flies just took over 
from one lousy plant that I brought into the greenhouse. Yes, that that yes, that that's a problem. And and when you bring plants in and you're concerned about whitefly, it's always good to look um, on the middle-ish kind of leaves. If you know the very newest growth, you may find a whitefly an egg or two. But if you look a couple leaves down, is where you're going to find the immature whiteflies because the whiteflies tend to lay their eggs on the new growth. And as the plant grows and those eggs hatch, they actually are moving down in the plant profile, if that makes sense. So checking those middle plant, middle leaves on the plants, you can often see if you have signs of white fly there, the immature, because the immature stage looks like a tiny little yellow bump on the other side of the leaf, uh, similar to possibly a scale insect. So you can be loaded with the immature stage and shake the plant and not a single adult fly off because there are no adults in the plants because you just have the immature stage. But then coming about a week, you're going to have biblical clouds of white flies. Oh, biblical clouds. That that sounds about right. <laughs> it got so bad in my greenhouse because, of course, I had other plants in there. And it got so bad in there that I was afraid to lean over the bench and inhale at the same time. Yep. I've been <laughs> greenhouses like that. And, oh. and again, with the mesia, and again, this gets really into, you know, bug nerd universe. There's, you know, multiple whitefly species, and that's part of my job is I identify what whitefly they have so we can get the right parasite uh, to control it. But that's what a lot of commercial growers are doing. Like all these hothouse tomatoes that you buy from Canada and Mexico, they buy tiny little wasps that are the size of a pinhead, and they release them into their greenhouses, and those wasps, fly around and find those immature white flies and lay their egg inside of them and kill them. And, and the, the use of white fly parasites is very common in greenhouse production today. Um, now, you can, as a homeowner, you can order them. The problem is, is they can get a little expensive to use because really the, it's, it's the commercial growers that are buying in bulk get the better deals. Um, but if you were interested in something like that, um, Green Methods out of California, um, they actually do provide homeowner-sized packaging of many of the beneficial insects um, that the home gardener may be interested in using um, or if you have a hobby greenhouse um, because uh, they, they, they're, they're – Right Hand is a company called Beneficial Insectary, and they um, are an insectary that produce for commercial growers, where their left hand is Green Methods, and that caters to the homeowner market. So they have the insects right there in their production facility, so they can just package it in smaller sizes for homeowners to be able to buy. And now here's another problem that I've had people ask me about. When they have a citrus plant of some kind, um, and they bring it in for the winter, almost invariably, their the population of spider mites explodes. Is there anything natural people yes. can use for that? Yes, and this is again. Unfortunately, you get a little bit into. You, you got to do a little work um, to figure out which mite you have. On citrus, you can either have two spotted spider mite or you can get citrus red mite. How you tell them apart is you need a 10x hand lens and to look at their eggs. Spider mite eggs are perfectly round like a um, baseball. The citrus red mite eggs, they're really cool looking. 
have literally like a whip on the top of them. They almost look like a rounded Hershey kiss with that whip on the top. And the, what what the citrus growers I work with do, because I work with people that grow citrus inside of greenhouses, is they release predatory mites. And so what you can do is from a company like Green Methods, if you can call them and say, hey, I've got citrus mite, citrus red mite, or I've got two spots. They can sell you the right predatory mite to use on your tree, and so you can release them initially as a preventative to get it cleaned up so you don't have that problem in the winter. That's wonderful because I know when I had a small tree, I was forever taking it into the shower with me and giving it a good hose down, and that gets old really fast. We yeah, have to take a want- short break. We have to take a short break right now, but we'll be right back after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is the Bug Lady. And you have a company by that name, don't you, Suzanne? Uh, yes, I do. Um, Bug Lady Consulting, which I've now had uh, 15 years. I've actually been in business um, working as a consultant. I don't sell any biocontrol agents or insecticides or products really i do sell hand lenses on my website that doesn't really i mean that's just so people have access to them um but um i teach a lot of workshops and classes i'm doing about uh, 50 lectures a year these these days oh that's a lot of traveling yeah every single week Okay, well, Bug Lady, right before we went, had to go for the break, I mentioned bringing my citrus in and taking it in the shower and washing it. But there's something special that people have to know about washing off bugs, don't they? Yeah, the, the, when plants are outside, you do get that natural rainfall washing down over the plants, which does help remove some of the insects. But 
um, with things like spider mites, when you, you put them in the shower, um, you're simulating the rain, but spider mites tend to live on the undersides of leaves, and so you really have to almost turn the plants over to um, rinse those spider mites off the undersides of your leaves, which can be very difficult to do, especially if you're de dealing with larger plants, uh, something like a citrus plant. Outside in the landscape, when we get the rains, the advantage you get there is you're creating more of a humid environment. And spider mites really don't thrive necessarily always in, in, in humidity. They tend to like it a bit more hot and dry. Um, so if you have windows in your house um, where you tend to put your plants um, and you're running your air conditioning, you make that warm kind of dry environment which spider mites can thrive in. But there's an actual study shown that plants grown with overhead irrigation have fewer spider mite problems than plants that are watered just on the soil line. Um, so for a homeowner, you know, rinsing them off can help, but for spider mites, you got to make sure you get the undersides of leaves. Uh, things like aphids, which can also be on citrus plants and other house plants, those tend to be on the new growing buds um, of the plants, which are more exposed, uh, uh, you know, upright on the plant that can be more easily washed off in the shower. And for people that want to know how they can get their plant turned upside down, what I used to do is get a great big plastic bag like from the dry cleaners, and I would stick the pot into it, and then I would use a twist tie to twist that tie around the stem and make sure your soil is moist even though it is heavier because if your soil isn't moist, it's going to fall off in the bag, and then you'll have a mess anyway. But but that works pretty well. And, of course, if you've got a smaller plant, you can do the same thing in the kitchen sink. Okay. Now, we were talking about places where we can buy things like uh, beneficial nematodes and things like that. And what about people buying? I know that people are going to ask, well, where can I buy ladybugs? Oh, this, this is... <laughs> Anybody that knows me knows this is one of my um, uh, personal things that um, I, I do have an issue with about people selling ladybugs. Um, a lot of gardeners and even some commercial growers don't realize where uh, the ladybugs they're buying are coming from. And for the homeowner, if you walk into a garden center, those ladybugs that are being sold there um, were collected out from the Sierra Nevadas out in the western United States. They literally go up to the mountains when the ladybugs are overwintering because they hibernate in the wintertime. The ladybugs fly up to the mountains. They cluster together in, in, in groups by the thousands and thousands, and that's where they, they, they hibernate just like a bear. But what happens is these harvesters come up, and they literally vacuum all these ladybugs up, and then they bring them down from the mountains, and then they put them in refrigerators and then wait for people to buy them. Um, from a organic gardening standpoint, it's ecologically not a very uh, – I think it goes against everything about organics where you're trying to be good to the planet. I mean, why would you take an, a species out of its native habitat to, you know, I don't want to say decimate the population, but they do take a 
big chunk of the population out and then bag them and send them to other parts of the United States. Now, granted, the particular species they're using, Epidemia convergens, is native to most of the United States, but still, those ladybugs that are out west are not to be meant over, not meant to be over here on the east coast. Um, and so, by releasing them, you're actually disrupting their native population. From a scientific standpoint, there's been plenty work done showing that when you buy these wild harvested ladybugs and release them, they don't stay, and they actually don't even control your insect populations. Um, this is not a good practice to use. Um, None of my commercial growers I work with use these ladybugs. We don't need to. We've got other biocontrol options and, again, some of these fungi that we're using. And even for a lot of pest ladybugs, target to control, you know, horticultural soaps and, um, and oils work extremely well. So from multiple standpoints, it's just not a good idea. You know, people do this, the gardeners, because they think they're doing the right thing. They want to be kind to the earth, and they don't want to spray insecticides. But it, I think it's a, it's a huge negative. And, you know, I do a lot of finger-wagging at companies that do sell them because it's, it's an easy moneymaker because if you don't have to actually raise the insects, um, it's real easy. I mean, imagine if a garden center only had to go out into a forest dig up plants and stick them in a pot and sell them, how much easier that would be and cheaper than having to grow them in a greenhouse. And that's basically what's happening. And um, I'm really hoping within my lifetime this practice is going to stop. But the only way it will stop is if people stop buying the ladybugs. Thank you. I've been wanting somebody to say that for a long time. There, it, it, we have a large chain here that sells ladybugs every spring, and it just makes me crazy. I, I just, uh, I, it, I can't stand it. And now, right. I also read that there is a parasite that comes from west east with those ladybugs. Well, there's there's other multiple issues. Um, there is uh, definitely a parasite, and this parasite is actually a little wasp. Um, and this particular wasp, what it does is it comes in and it lays its egg um, on uh, the the well, they, they insert the egg into the ladybug, and then what this wasp does is it, the wasp larva, when it hatches inside the ladybug, doesn't actually kill the ladybug. And this is this is actually some newer research, which is interesting, um, because if you spend any time watching ladybugs that have been infected, you notice their bodies still twitch. Now they're not actively feeding; they're not walking around. But what they found is by this wasp, even though it's living and eating inside of the ladybug, it doesn't kill it because the ladybug twitching makes predators think that the ladybug is alive and so it leaves it alone. So it's actually a good way for this particular wasp to be protected. So it, it's, it's like being inside of a Trojan horse that's moving, and so it keeps predators away, and the wasp has a much better chance of actually becoming an adult in this way. They actually did some studies where they took these ladybugs that have been infected and cut their heads off, which is terrible. I would not want that job. But so that the ladybugs were 100% dead, 
compared to the ladybugs that had the parasites whose heads were left on that could still twitch. And the parasites that were inside of the ladybugs that were left alive had a much higher success rate as becoming adults because predators didn't come in and eat them like they did in the dead ladybugs. So it, it's a really interesting defense mechanism. And, and they call these ladybugs zombie ladybugs because they are. They're basically zombies that, um, you know, they're, they're alive, but they're really not in control of themselves anymore. And when you buy ladybugs in that have been wild harvested, and this is documented in researchers. Researchers have bought ladybugs that were wild harvested, and they actually counted the parasites that were coming out of them, and they've proven their parasites coming out of them. And they've also found there's another disease, um, a microsporidia, that also <clears throat> comes in these ladybugs too. Um, and so when you buy these ladybugs and you introduce them into your yard, you're introducing more of this parasite, you're introducing this ladybug disease, and you're just, you just run a higher risk of hurting your ladybugs that you do have there locally. Good. Thank you. <laughs> that's, another, that's another one of the points that, that bugs me about, about bringing these things in. I'm really pretty much against bringing in insects from other areas, and we have a prob- such a problem with some, some invaders that have come in either with, um, like with the ladybugs or that are coming in on shipping crates and packing materials and things like that. Yeah, it, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue as our economy has, it, it, well, it is, it's depending more on and more on bringing in goods from Asia and other countries. We're going to continually to introduce more and more invasive insects. Um, you know, in, in Florida, which they consider one of the worst ecological disasters in the world from an invasive standpoint, gets um, a new invasive established once a month down there now. And that's established where it, it's living wow. and, and thriving down there. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, you, you think about between all the invasive insects, you know, the, the imported fire ants, um, you know, you've got the Asian citrus psyllid that's causing all kinds of problems in citrus. You have Nile crocodiles now. You've got the pythons down there now. I mean, it, it's and, and not even getting into all the weed issues they have down there. But um, it's coming at an alarming rate, and we have fewer and fewer scientists working on this these days. We have fewer and fewer people at the border watching this stuff these days because I, I, our country has decided that, Science is not a priority, and this kind of stuff is not a priority, and, and we don't want to fund it. That is so sad because we're going to be in just a world of hurt. Even you, know, you look at things like the Asian ambrosia beetle or the, um, the emerald ash borer that are just doing so much damage. Right. How can we be and doing it? Emerald ash borer is a real tricky one because – you know, the, the the way that most people are able to stop it from killing their trees is through the use of neonic insecticides, which loops back around to that whole issue of, you know, people are demanding that they get banned and we sh- shouldn't be using them. The thing is, is if you do ban the neonics, just all the ash trees in the U.S. will probably be gone. 
um, except for, you know, varieties that are more resistant um, or areas where emerald ash borer can't thrive, but it, it's, it's popping up in more and more places. And so it, it, it's a tough call, you know, do we want to protect the ash trees or do we want to ban insecticides? You know, so we're going to have to decide if, you know, what we're going to do. Well, and that leaves us with another break. We'll be right back after this. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is the bug lady, Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, and we're talking about everything about beneficials today and getting rid of some some pests that we have in the garden. And I know that a lot of you have problems with Japanese beetles. So, Suzanne, what is new for Japanese beetles? You certainly don't want to set out the, the bags, do you? No, no, there's been plenty of research showing that the bags actually make your Japanese beetle problems um, worse. Um, and this is because the compound in those traps that attracts the Japanese beetles is what they call, it's pretty much non-selective. It attracts males and females. So as the males are flying in, the females will often be flying in, and the females can stop and actually lay more eggs in your yard. So it's actually for years been recommended not to do them. Um, I always find it very interesting, though, because they usually have displays of the Japanese beetle traps right next to the insecticides for the Japanese beetles <laughs> because I figure, you know, if you're going to put the traps out, you're going to end up having more problems anyhow, so you will often need the insecticides. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a vicious cycle there on using the traps. So the traps are not recommended. What is new, though, is they have found um, a, uh, there's a bacteria, and it's actually sold to you as a dead bacteria. It's called Bacillus thuringiensis galeria, G-A-L-L-E-R-I-A. And this particular strain of what they call BT will kill adult Japanese beetles. And then they also do have a formulation that you can use on your grass for control of the grubs in your lawn. What's nice about this is that it's very selective in a sense. It only works on like Japanese beetles and a few weevil species and maybe one or two other beetles. It will not harm your pollinators and it, it's not going to do anything to control anything else for you. It's, it's very specific. And what's nice about using this compared to something like seven dust, seven will kill everything, all your beneficials, 
everything. And, and so it's really not selective. This will allow you to go in and target just the Japanese beetles to take them out. Because even, even products like neem, which home gardeners really like to use um, because um, it's, it can be used in organic production, is, again, non-selective. Neem oil can kill your beneficials just as easily as it kills the pests. Um, but it, it also, neem oil has this great repelling quality to it, and they found it actually will repel the beneficials too. So neem being non-selective, you have to be just very careful when using it, where something like this Bt galeria um, is, is something that is, is very selective, and you can target your specific pest in there. That is wonderful. Now, does, you mentioned that it's really specific. It's not going to hurt the ladybugs in your no. lawn, right? No, they've or, not found it. Or your it ground so beetles. Well, this is, um, okay, now ground beetles, I don't know. I, I know that they've looked at some things like wireworms, which isn't, you know, those are in the soil and they are a pest, but it does not have effect on that. So it's had minimal impact on, again, only certain beetle groups. Now, I don't know if they've tested every single beetle out there, but also this has to be ingested. And so it's applied to plant material and they ingest it. So just coming in contact with it will not kill it. Okay, good. Because um, I always worry, I know people think ground beetles are ugly, but they do a lot of good for us, don't they? I don't think they're ugly. I, they're, I, I like them. But yeah, they'll, they'll feed on a lot of, uh, they'll feed on grubs, they'll feed on slugs, they'll feed on lots of different uh, things. So they're an important part of the ecology. Okay, so we have a lot of, of beneficial, we had talked earlier about bringing in um, various things to control the pests that we have, but we have a lot of beneficial insects out there. How can people get them to welcome them into their garden? Um, they can um, bring them into their garden by doing a few different things. Um, one thing they can do is attract, put, put out plants that will attract them into their garden. And what research has shown, and this is where, you know, going online and reading sometimes you know, you, you have to be very careful with it because if you, if you go online and Google attracting beneficials, they give you all these plant lists and say plant this, plant that. What research is finding is not so much about plant species, it's about biodiversity. And in studies where they've actually put out an assortment of plants that picked all the blooms off by just having biodiversity, they bring in crazy amounts of beneficials. Beneficials do not like monocultures. They like to have a variety of plant heights and plant textures. Now that said, some of the beneficials do require um, uh, nectar as adults. If you look at things like lacewings, uh, green lacewings in particular, uh, the larvae are predatory and they feed on aphids. I actually was filming uh, last week lacing larvae eating spider mite eggs at an amazing rate. I was blown away at how destructive lacewing larvae can be to spider mite populations. But um, they're, they're meat eaters in their immature stage, but once they become adults, they actually require pollen and nectar. So by having plants around for the adults to get the pollen and nectar from, they'll lay their eggs around and in the larval stage will feed on the pests in the garden. 
Okay. Um, what other things can people do to attract them? And, and you mentioned pollen. I don't think a lot of people, I mean, they think about butterflies and butterflies needing, uh, or bees, and bees needing the pollen. But what what if other insects are eating that stuff? What are their beneficials? Well, Surfed flies, which are also called flower flies or sometimes hover flies, they mimic bees, but they're actually a fly. The um, adult stage of them, they, they fly like little helicopters up and down and left and right over um, the blooms of plants. And so they're pollinators, but they're also um, feeding on nectar and pollen in there. But the larval stage look like tiny caterpillars, and they feed on aphids and other soft-bodied insects that you can find um, in the garden. So um, that's another one that providing um, nectar plants for them. And I found things like uh, calendula and yarrow and daisies um, a really uh, good uh, food source for the adults because I find adults on those plants all the time in my yard. Um, I've also found uh, surfer flies on mini roses and much more open flowers. And this is something they're finding, too, um, about uh, pollinators and beneficials. Flower shapes can make a difference. If you look at roses, a lot of people like what would be like a traditional long stem rose, which it has all those petals, and it's a very tight flower, but there's no way for the beneficials or pollinators to get into the pollen and nectar that's down inside of that flower. What they like are the old-fashioned roses that maybe have five or six petals that are completely open, almost like a plate, so that they can have access to the pollen and nectar inside of the flower. So flower shape does make a difference in being able to feed um, these beneficials. So you can't just say, oh, plant roses to feed them. It, it depends on the flower shape of the roses. Now, that brings me to something else. And, and we're, we, golly, we only have five more minutes. But I wanted to ask you, since we got on the, the flower shape thing, um, what do you think about the native ours? And the, the cultivated varieties of our natives, um, and you think of a lot of those as being good for beneficial insects and pollinators, but some of them have very tight flowers now too, don't they? Well, but you also have to think, and I, you know, I honestly say I am I'm not completely on board with planting natives these days, only because. Those plants that are native to the part of the United States, the ecology is not the same anymore. The soil's not the same. The, the plants being planted around them are the same. The insects are not the same. There's nothing the same about when that plant was here 300 years ago. So I don't always think just because that plant has been on, you know, a particular longitude and latitude that that plant is now still ideally the best plant there. I mean... Anybody right now planting, you know, ash trees, you know, you seriously have to think about that because, yeah, ash trees are native, but, you know, with emerald ash borer here now, you're going to have nothing but problems. So you, you do have to um, think wisely about uh, what, what plants you are planting to see if they are the right plant for the right place. Now, the flip side to that is plants have definitely been selected, um, the plants we buy in garden centers have been selected for attributes that we want. Do they stay short? Do they stay compact? Do they have bright colored blooms? Do they have multiple blooms? Do they have lots of petals? We have selected plants for human aesthetics 
not what's good necessarily for pollinators or beneficials. And this ties into some of the work that they're doing um, with um, for, for bees and pollinators because what they're finding is, sure, you can go to a garden center, buy lots of plants, and plant them out, and you can have all these blooms in your yard, but it may not be good food for bees um, out there. Um, it's 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 kind of the equivalent of, you know, putting McDonald's out in your yard and saying, okay, here here's pollen and nectar, go feed on it, but it may not be the right pollen and nectar for your for for the bees and there's been discussions and actually like I said some research going on that basically we're starving a lot of the pollinators not only by having lack of diversity in plants but the plants we're offering to them are almost useless as a pollen and nectar resource. Wow, that's a scary thought. All the people are running around buying plants that they thought would be good. So you mentioned um, calendula and daisies. What what else might somebody plant? I know you don't like the plant list, but it's a good thing for people to know. Well, I find well, that I, I have I, tons I, of beneficials on my on my dill plants, for example, when I go into flower. Right, and dill is great, just like uh, cilantro is great. But again, you're getting into not native plants, but they're providing a good resource for them, but those also have that bit shorter of a bloom window. The trick is to try to have a pollen and nectar resource the whole growing season. Now, some states have been putting together lists. Um, I know you're down in Georgia, but Michigan's done a great job. They actually have a plant list that for the people in Michigan, they tell you what to plant so you can have blooms the entire growing season and uh, what plants to plant that are better floral resources for either native pollinators or honeybees because, you know, honeybees are a different different ball game than our native pollinators because honeybees are not native to the United States. They were imported from Europe. Um, and everybody's working really hard to save this basically invasive insect because, again, they're, they're not native to here, um, but they are now found all over the U.S. Um, but lots of states, and that's what I would look for. I would look for extension plant lists for where you are located, not, not necessarily, and I say this very nicely, you know, someone's blog because what I'm finding is Somebody created this plant list and have things on it like, oh, plant marigolds, plant impatience, and they've just cut and pasted, and everybody that does blogs just cuts and pastes it from everybody else with no science behind it. And that's why you've got to look for plant lists that have science to support it. Penn State has done it. They, they looked at, uh, I think it was 78 perennials. Uh, for a growing season, and they literally had people sitting and monitoring the plants and looking at every insect that visited the plants, and then they broke the plants into these shorter lists, like here are the top ten plants for cervid flies, here are the top ten plants for attracting honeybees, here are the top ten plants for bumblebees. And so it actually, you know, they did the research to put those lists together. So um, if you look online, you can start finding this information, but you have to make sure that the list pertains to your growing zone in your geographic area. Thank you so much, Suzanne. We are out of time, and I can't believe that this hour went by so quickly. But I will put your website up, and it very quickly it's um, www.bugladyconsulting.com. It's all one okay. word. And also, if you just Google buglady, B-U-G-L-A-D-Y, is one word, you, you can find me. I'm the most easiest found person on the Internet, I think. <laughs> 
Okay. Thank you once again for being with us. And that's all the time we have today on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We'll be back. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for 